I think uh, today is just a continuation of Monday's discussion and episode. So this is going to be part two of sci-fi series is short-lived, well-loved, those that became cults, despite being so short-term, they just end up being well-loved and liked, and because of that, there is a fan base that just won't let them die. <laughs> and that's coming up next on Couch and Coffee Table. Stay with us. This is Couch and Coffee Table. I'm Michael Perry. I'm Heather Perry. And we're just going to go ahead and kick back into this episode of Couch and Coffee Table. It's a continuation from our last episode's uh, discussion about short-lived sci-fi series and really what makes a good show and Mm -hmm. what gives them their durability to last for so long provided we can name it sometimes we can't yeah we ended our last uh show talking about buck rogers and um we really ran out of time for that uh basically to catch up on that i felt buck rogers in the 25th century was a good tv show however i favor the first season more simply because it felt like it had a little bit more meat on it because you were you they were they were almost like the fbi or cia or Mm -hmm. cops or marshals in which they were leaving earth Mm -hmm. and going to these various different planets Mm -hmm. dealing with delegates from other planets and it made for more interesting stories and a little bit more espionage if you will and I felt like it it had a little bit of a James Bond in space feel to it, but it also had all kinds of other elements because you could deal with other other planets, other mm-hmm. species. You could bring in some aliens. Yeah, you could you could show some some serious diversity there. And I feel like that while all this was going on at the same time, it is a TV show, and so very quickly short term very episodic because they were getting the assignment of the week and they were going out and trying to solve the problem and running off to find the MacGuffin and everything so there is that this was 79 1979 yep and there were two seasons yes and i was mildly obsessed (laughs) i was very much obsessed i It had a robot in it, and so thanks to R2 and 3PO from Star Wars, I very much was a fan of Tweaky and Dr. Theopolis, who was on the council. And Theopolis was a round robot that the little robot Tweaky wore around his neck. Yeah, he was almost like a necklace. Yeah. But the whole council was like that, just round discs. Uh, That's right, yeah. Forgot about that. Uh, Twiggy, of course, was voiced by Mel Blanc. Yep. And had a verbal tick that was really annoying. Yeah. That was a whole shtick for a long time. Like, uh, come, uh, like, team show 
some character had a verbal tick that was inexplicable. They're, they're like, I could, we could drive off the cliff and talk about cartoons where uh, American uh, production houses would read up Japanese cartoons and just be yeah. really weird about the yeah. whole thing. And we might have a show mm-hmm. concerning that uh, before this month is over. We could also do a whole show just talking about Mel. Yeah, because oh, yeah. Mel was my Saturday morning. It's like that's our childhood. Yeah, Casey Kasem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Between the two of them, that's that's yeah. most of childhood. Yeah, that's that's a lot of it. I mean, I I would say Mel was a good fifty mm-hmm. to seventy five percent because there are still things that I'm finding that not just Looney Tunes, but Hanna Barbera embraced uh-huh. him very quickly on. And he's just so <laughs> many different save characters. So many production costs. Hire this guy. Yeah. So we, we touched briefly last time, and I'm so glad you reminded me because uh, just oh, that is rain. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's pouring buckets. That's that's fun. Yes, it's raining outside while we record this. Sorry. <laughs> uh, my work schedule changed briefly, so that's why uh, things are so up in the air here. But. Um, Second season of Buck Rogers, there were some significant changes in characterization as well as the addition of new characters, um, one of whom I was so into. And uh, we we touched on the the change between Wilma Deering. 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 I always put an L in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. I hope you can hear that, actually. That's it's just buckets outside. Um, so Wilma went from first season, incredibly competent colonel. Um, I think they modeled the, whatever foundation on the air force. Yeah. So she was, uh, but she was a fighter pilot and she was amazing. And she had no patience for Buck Rogers. Who Buck, so did we, did we talk what the premise was? For the second season? No, just the premise for the show, Buck Rogers. Uh, We we did did touch on it. Go ahead and touch on it again. Uh, basically, Buck Rogers is an astronaut doing an experimental flight. He gets caught up in some kind of uh... ion storm okay, or there we go. something like that. And the um, a lot of the gases and everything fuse together. He loses control of his ship and everything, his life support system, everything freezes. Uh-huh. And he winds up being frozen in time. <laughs> for 500 years mm-hmm. and he wakes up to a very different galaxy and earth than what he left and a lot which is very much fish out of water and it adds to the fact that he is helping earth he he's come home to find a much different earth and a much different world and galaxy around him and very much fish out of water. And it it added an element of it that I thought was interesting because here's a guy who, you know, left in 1987 and has to deal with like it being 24 or something. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of times the element he brought, the fish out of water element he brought was disco. So because because it was filmed in 79 so yeah yeah. so there was a lot of that um and there's there's a space princess ardala basically she's kind of the one of the pseudo villains of the piece and she actual dialogue about her uh marveling at his primitive 
uh, Earthman sexuality or some some such nonsense. Yeah. He's he's at some sort of like space space ball function. In in the very beginning, yeah, in the, in the pilot, he's dancing disco. <laughs> it's yeah, like the the uh, he is trying to teach everyone else about rock. Secondhand rock and roll factor and so, here was off the charts for infant Heather. <laughs> I practically hit under the couch, but um, second season sees Wilma go from this incredibly competent character who's absolutely qualified to yeah could have been an instructor at at Top Gun yeah okay could have been an instructor at Top Gun and second season they stick her in a skirt and they stick her uh the they they're on a weird spaceship all of a sudden they're on and, the searcher and it's Star Trek. Yeah, and Buck Rogers is not quite captain, but he's sort of first officer type. Yeah. Like he'd be the Riker running around and, and Yeah, he that that is actually the best way to describe him is that mm -hmm. Buck Rogers becomes Riker. That's yeah. actually a you just nailed it. Oh good. Because <laughs> that's because um, he isn't captain, uh -huh. but he does have about yeah. the same amount of leadway mm -hmm. that a commander Riker would have on the enterprise and Star mm -hmm. Trek next gen. Yeah. He's all over the place. Well, in their, in their space travels, um, they also gain some sort of fuddy duddy doctor who wears a cardigan all the time and a new robot that hates everybody. Uh, yeah. But uh, the robot's name is Crichton and he's a misanthrope really. And, it, it, since it's in his programming to be that way, it never made sense to me that you would program the bot to be a misanthrope. Right. Like somebody did this deliberately. Yeah. And so, so that, that always made me scratch my head. Well, they, they end up on a planet and a uh, plot happens, uh, but they end up with this character. Yeah. Uh, called Hawk. <laughs> and uh, he's supposed to be this Birdman alien type. Yeah. So uh, we could we could talk nine years about the fact that they name him Hawk. Yeah. And he is a bird type guy. The, the actor is striking. He has striking features, uh, very fine eyes. But he kind of joins the crew as the wharf character. He's he's all fighty and uh, honorable mission of, uh, you know, impossible doom or something. And he. Yeah. They. They don't quite make it a buddy cop show with with uh, Buck Rogers, but almost. Almost with him and Hawk, they almost yeah. make it a, a a buddy cop. They go on patrol, whatever patrol means in this. Yeah, context. they they so they go to all kinds of different planets together, and mm -hmm. they the season opens up with them very much enemies. Hawk is almost the last of his kind. He ends up leaving his planet. And going with them at the end because of reasons, and yeah. yeah, it's the second season was if they'd have if they'd have started out like the third or fourth season like this, I would have said okay, but it was an abrupt change. It was an abrupt change, and yeah. because of that, it for me as a little kid, I was sitting there going okay because. You gain characters for the second season, uh -huh. but you also lose characters. Yes. You lose Dr. Theopolis. Yeah. Uh, there was a character that they had in the first season that was very intricate that worked with the council that helped right. them figure out what, what they were going to work on next. His name was Dr. Ewer. 
Yeah, he was, no sign of Doctor Ewer for the second season. He was a good character too. He was a good character. He was well written. He was well established, and he he helped along with Wilma, and Doctor Theopolis and Tweaky, to help Buck transition into the current century that they were in. Yeah, and then he's gone, and we have these new characters over here. You have the captain, Captain Isomov, who is supposed to be a descendant of Isaac Isomov. Asimov? Asimov, thank you. I'm saying it wrong. I apologize. You're okay. We got there. <laughs> we got there. Yeah. Um, you have you have the captain who very much wants to, in the very first episode, concerning Crichton, he says, I want to take a hacksaw to him. <laughs> and... I can't say as I blame him because first oh. impression of Crichton is I could take or leave him because usually oh. if it's got a robot, then great, wonderful. But Well, this is interesting. I, I'm looking this up on Wikipedia too because uh, something else yeah. came to mind. But um, ratings drop significantly with the second season and uh, they note, uh, coupled with an increasingly problematic semi-naked star, NBC canceled Buck Rogers at the end of the 11th episode, uh, strike abbreviated second season. So another writer's strike. Uh, the increasingly naked co-star was probably Princess Ardala. Ardala didn't show up. Mm. I I don't know if she showed up in the second season or not. Okay. Uh, it might have been how they were addressing Wilma. Oh, dear. Because Wilma very much oh. had a blue and white. Did Ardala show up in the second season? Yeah, I can't she remember. had Tiger Man. There was, and then she there was had, a different Tiger Man. Yeah, the Panther Man or something. So, Panther Man, yes, yeah, yes, he was, that's he was right. He was mostly naked most of the time. Okay. Very okay. buff fellow. Um, I don't know the actor. Was Sid Haig in this? Uh, yes, I think okay. Sid, uh, Sid yeah. Haig may or may not have been Panther Man. I don't. Yeah. The biggest thing that I would know sci-fi that Sid Haig did, for those of you yeah. that are Gen Xers that might remember Jason of Star Command. On Saturday mornings, yeah, he was Dregos. He was the main baddie, the main villain, and yeah, it's it's Ardala who's mostly naked. Yeah, and yeah. that <laughs> I don't know why everybody was up in arms over that over second season. She'd done two or three appearances, not to mention the pilot. Yeah, and she was always wearing skimpy things, like bikini so, style, basically. Yeah, but you know, if this is what we've been doing up to this point. If nobody has pitched a fit, then right. I don't know why all of a sudden somebody looked up and went, hey, she's naked. Right. She's not naked. She might be semi-naked, but okay. she's clothed. We, we need to. Yeah. We need that's to another one I was going to hit on. up. Yeah. yeah. Motor on. But next um, <laughs> uh, staying with uh, Glenn Larson uh, before who put together the show. Uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century. I thought I'd backtrack just for a second to pick up a, a sci-fi show he had done before. In fact, the model for The Searcher came from the first sci-fi show, uh, Battlestar Galactica. Right. Okay. And yeah, Michael's reminding me. Leftover we... models and everything were what they used. We had an for, itinerary. <laughs> for that. And Battlestar Galactica is really, it was a good show. It dealt with colonists. So you had 13 colonies. They were planets. And, or no, it might have been the 12 colonies. 
12, well, they, the 12 colonies, and they were searching for They the were 13th. searching for the 13th colony, yeah. which was Earth. Now, because this is the older had, one. This is the 1978 yeah, Battlestar Galactus. So this is the yes, original. Yeah. This is not the 2004 uh, reboot yeah. of Grim Dark, Dark Grim fame. Yeah. It, uh, this is the goofy 70s one, and every single female co-star, it seemed, uh, was clad in diaphanous chiffon. And infant Heather was very taken with this, uh, but it was uh, the Cylons show up. They're murderous robots of murdering uh, bent. Yeah, uh, I forget why, but um, they show up and blow the heck out of everything. Uh, so the ships assemble and leave their planets. And are the are the planets still like you know planet Gemini and planet Taurus? Is that yeah yeah okay. the zodiac signs? So yeah. you had the Taurans, mm -hmm. the Gemins, mm -hmm. the Sagittarius. Um, what were the Cancers? I forget. Crab people. <laughs> I, I don't uh, know, but they they, they fitted in the. Um, they fitted in the zodiacs mm -hmm. to be the various different types of planets and they um they had a history of they had had people that had settled on earth and that's why they were looking for that particular planet because it was a it was called a sister world okay and they were hoping that they had been obliterated by the cylons all these worlds a lot of, they were mm -hmm. trying the cylons were trying to exterminate the humans was it only one season? Uh, oh, there were re there. Okay, I I know what's going on. There was only one original season, and then they brought it back and did, did weird things. Yeah, um, yeah. But and when it was on for that first season, part of the problem was they kept moving it around. Yeah, well, it was that was the original track too. Yeah, it was yeah. so sporadic mm -hmm. that you couldn't really catch it on the air. Yeah, it was like okay. the, the the network. Uh, murdering it before it got started. Yeah. So this was 78 to 79, and then they did another season that was Battlestar Galactica 1980, and they yeah, they and changed that... it up and added characters, and there was there was some kid. Yeah. It's it's a bad choice in a science fiction show when you throw uh, in the kid. Uh, Wesley Crusher notwithstanding, because Wesley was there from the beginning, but um, this was some, some blonde kid in a bowl cut and three-piece white suit and everybody was taking orders. I, for, I forget the, the thing. But Dirk Benedict is in this. And so is Richard yeah. Hatch. Um, also Lauren Green. So yeah. uh, I, I, I never really caught him on. Uh, he was on some Western. Um, oh, Lauren Green was on Bonanza. Yeah. He so, played Ben Cartwright. Uh, now he's in space. And yeah. <laughs> he's got another TV show. But, yeah, phenomenal actor. But yeah. Um, you know, uh, good singer too, from what I'm to understand. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Small Heather was slightly confused. You're, you're not going to believe this, but the cast of Bonanza put out a Christmas album. <laughs> yeah, it's oh, true. Dear. Yeah, yeah. I oh, actually, no. I, I actually found this once. I didn't buy it, but I oh. found it in a. Uh, if you have a half price books near you, shameless plug, but I found it in one of those. And um, just, I I was, I I almost bought it for notoriety's sake. But then I thought, no, I can't really do that because <laughs> I, I, yeah, I want to, I want to hear it first, oh, but you know. Can't do that story. Yeah. But Lauren Green was a part of Bonanza. Um, 
Richard Hatch had done quite a few uh, things. He had done some Barnaby Jones movie of the week and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was quite passionate about Battlestar Galactica for yes. years. Like he's very yeah. noted uh, in the in the fan base for going to conventions. And uh, I don't know if I told you about this, but um, around in the early to mid 90s, I had a friend who was into cosplay before it was really super well known. Yeah. And his favorite cosplay was an entire replica of the Battlestar Galactica fighter pilot uniform. Yeah. There so, I've seen those at the convention mm -hmm. we used to frequent yeah. a long time back. They Yeah. It was a very distinctive brown and tan uniform and the yeah. helmet looked like a, a pharaoh's uh cloth headpiece and I'm forgetting the term for that. But um shout out to my brother Tim. Hello Tim. Uh when I was very small uh we were watching this show because this came out in seventy eight so I was like four <laughs> it ended in yeah. 79 so i was watching it as it was broadcast i was small enough to fit in a milk crate and my very patient older brother would pop me in the milk crate put another one over the top of me and somehow rig uh he had a bunch of old light switches like not attached to anything so those would be in the inside with me and i would flip a series of switches and then he would pick up both of the milk crates and fly me around the basement because I was small enough to do this with. Uh, and we would pretend I was in the cockpit of one of the ships from Battlestar Galactica. That's and cool. And I would flip the switches and then he'd pick up the milk crate and, and fly me around. Mm -hmm. um, it's a fantastic memory. And uh, very cool. Unfortunately, very I cool. do not fit in the milk crate anymore. <laughs> but yeah, shout out to a good older brother. Um, yeah. Good memory. Good yeah. Memory. Yeah. So it, it was uh, stylistically, it was it was very influential, I would say, uh, to, to those of us who watched it. Um, the reboot in 2004 was uh, was interesting because it was so much more serious. Yeah, it was more serious, more dark, unrelenting. Yeah. So uh, these guys couldn't catch a break. I mean, yeah. it was I found a penny. Your family died. <laughs> the the actors and everyone who were involved in the reboot of Battlestar Galactica all gave Still very good done. performances. Yeah. It's just that the subject matter that they dealt with was just so freaking dark that yeah. after a certain point, I'm I'm very sorry to say I had to I had to sign off because Same. it was just so dark and bleak yeah that i i just i i i just couldn't i just yeah. couldn't because after a certain point i felt like everybody was a cylon yeah and yeah. you couldn't tell who was they a were, cylon and who wasn't they were dealing with that they were they, yeah. like the cylons weren't the um sort of suit of armor robots yeah. from the first season they were yeah. a lot more subtle and uh i think the writers were kind of writing as they went along which sometimes uh, works and sometimes doesn't yeah i mean a lot of the things we were talking about we've been talking about tonight uh suffer from um first season uh we begin with a concept and then second season the writers change some fundamental structure things yeah because they're trying to find their audience they're trying to find their feet yeah and they miss on a second season and it, it kills the show and with Battlestar, you didn't really 
get a second season. Mm -hmm. You didn't really. Until you did 1980 and it was. 1980. And with that, they changed the concept mm -hmm. again. But not so much. It's just they kind of fast forwarded over a bunch of stuff and said, okay, uh, we found Earth. And there was a little boy in the first one called Boxy. Oh, Boxy. And in the 1981, uh, Boxy is now fully grown. Oh, I... And he's one of the ones... Wait, wait a minute. He's... I'm sorry. <laughs> um, he's... How did that happen? Again, they jumped. Okay. From because, first... because Dirk Benedict doesn't age. He's like the same age. Like, just whoop, Boxy grew up. Yeah. Also, science fiction writers, cut it out with the weird names, okay? Okay. We're going to say it. No person would name their child Boxy. It's just... It no. might have been a nickname, but I I, could hope. I understand the premise behind Battlestar because you have an interesting... You have an interesting premise and you... Sort of the, a wagon train in space. Wagon train in space, but you also have elements where we freely grabbed from the biggest <clears throat> sci-fi film of the day that had mm -hmm. just come out, which was Star Wars. Yeah. So we need a great, beautiful, classical score yes. as well that oh, yeah. sounds very bicentennial oh, itself. My it's epic. It is. It was done by like, Stu Phillips, I believe. Mm -hmm. I believe he's the one that wrote the music for that and he gave it a very grand a, a very grand scope very much he he tried to be the best john williams without being john williams that yeah. he could but this is also the same guy if it is stuart phillips i'm still looking for oh sorry no no, no. I, if I it was i believe it was if it was stuart phillips then this is the same guy who gave us Stu Phillips. You're right. He is the same one who gave us the theme for Knight Rider. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. again, another yeah. Glenn Larson. Yeah. So, you we, know, we probably do need to do an entire episode on theme songs. Yeah. Because uh, you, like, you, I can hear this in my head now that we're talking about it. And it, it is a uh, goosebump. Inducing. Yeah. It's, it's that good. It's, it's yeah. Look at it. Yeah. Up. It, op it opens with such grand mm -hmm. circumstance, pomp and circumstance. Mm -hmm. It very much, you know, you, yeah. it has the same sort of elements that you might get from uh, the, the score in the first Star Wars film, whenever the medals are bestowed, it's that yeah, kind of yeah. grand, yeah. you know, yeah. Good, good analogy. You could, you could almost use it for a, a graduation of some sort in a mm -hmm. sci-fi thing. You know? Like, well, it, it's it's rousing. <laughs> yeah, it is rousing. You're you're very you're very. Invested. The horns kick yeah. in, and it's very much you know. Holy crap! <laughs> it's coming on. Don't let it start. Don't let it start. It's coming on. <laughs> it's coming on. Uh, Don't you... turn the channel. It's coming on. <laughs> I'm coming in the living room. I swear. <laughs> our our younger friends may may not recall, but um, in our childhood, if you missed it, you missed it. There there was no. Yeah, we we did not grow up with a VCR until later, <laughs> much in, much and, into the next decade in yeah. the eighties. Yeah, in the eighties when we got we to be got teenagers, some, but, we could tape it. But yeah. a lot of times, if you were taping it, you had to be there because right. nobody knew how to work the timer on a VCR. Nope. <laughs> I eventually learned, but it took oh. later models to do it. That's impressive. I never, the the early ones, it was yeah. just it, it it was like trying to 
work at cable box <laughs> in the beginning yeah from a, from a toaster pretty much <laughs> yeah figure out how to do a moon launch with a toaster <laughs> but uh so if you, if you missed your broadcast you were you were stuck hearing about it all the next day from your friends and like tell yeah. me about this oh, part you missed a really good show dang it <laughs> and it's just like was so-and-so in it what happened yeah Oh yeah, they never gave the play-by-play you wanted. It was, it yeah. was dreadful. Yeah, you oh, kicked they... yourself for a week. Yeah, and waiting heaven, on heaven forbid if it was a cliffhanger because then the, when you when you started seeing when you caught it the next week you're like ah yeah I wish I'd seen the setup for this. Yeah, if oh, they goodness. if they had a two-parter and they'd sit there yeah. and say previously on you know <laughs> right. and you got you got basically a short thing to bring you up to speed and then you know. Yeah. And now part two of, and they'd say the episode name on, and the show. Very special episode. Yeah. 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 So Battlestar Galactica. We're we're coming, we're coming close and we know, we we know I'm not going to be able to squeeze the next thing in on time. It'll, it will kick it off in the next segment. Yeah. But, you know, two from Glenn Larson right there. um, Buck Rogers in the 25th century, Battlestar Galactica, both. Both ones that are favorites mm-hmm. from childhood, and but, so Star Wars had a huge impact on network TV at this time, and rightfully so. Yeah, but you know, like everybody was doing space opera stuff. Yeah, they were, and it was formulaic in the we've got a ship and a crew. Yeah, not as named or or prominent a ship as Enterprise, but we've got some sort of quasi-military organization in space uh, going somewhere. Yeah. So maybe not five-year mission, uh, but, you know, few, yeah. few lasers in space. Yeah. And well, it's because of... Fighter uh, pilots. It's because of Star Wars that you were able to get Star Trek, the motion picture made, because right. Paramount instantly was looking around going, what do we have for that? <laughs> and someone said, I think we got Star Trek. Ta-da. And so that's how that yeah, was off and running. So talk about the transition from series to film and vice versa. But yeah, yeah, we, we are going to be right back. Yeah, we've we've gone on. Yeah, we <laughs> have. We need to cut it. Time for a bit of a break. So please stay with us. We'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't resist, could you? <laughs> no. <laughs> This is Couch and Coffee Table. Welcome back, Couch Surfers. This is our second segment for this episode, and we're just going to jump right back in and talk about our next TV show, which is Space 1999. We're kind of going backwards in the 70s here. This is another one of those uh, shows that lasted for only two seasons. Uh, Uh, 75 to 77. Yep, and it very much... What they did was two seasons, and in both seasons, not only did they change up different premises of the show, they also changed theme songs. Yes. They changed theme songs. Much in the fashion of Battlestar Galactica, first season is this rousing thing. It's it's a bit it's a bit epic. And then it, it busts into some groovy, groovy rock guitar. Seventies. Uh, Wah pedal, you know, it's wah pedal rock guitar for it, and I I loved it for that. But Same. I also loved the theme for the second season as well, which I remember less clearly. But it's uh, it's a little 
it has a little less urgency for me when you when you when you get into the guitar in the first one you're you're ready to run a race and yeah in, in the there's an one, urgency like, oh, okay it's all right we're still groovy but you know we're yeah along. there's I probably caught this in syndication just because 70 77 i was three so yeah uh i probably caught this reruns yeah so here's here's the pitch um there is a moon base and uh earth is uh thumping all of its nuclear waste onto the moon. And there's a crew that lived there, uh, moon base alpha. And, uh, it's, it's got a bunch of people and they're working and doing their jobs. But, uh, golly gee whiz, uh, we're putting all the, all the nuclear waste on the far side of the moon. And wouldn't you know it, it, it explodes and goes kablooey and pops the moon out of orbit. So here's everybody who was living on moon base alpha at the time is now stuck on the moon, which is hurtling through space. Um, and we lose touch with earth and everyone's quite traumatized, but they rally around uh, Martin Landau as he's in this and uh, Barbara Bain, who is his wife in real life at this time. And, um, Personal note: uh, It is it is my theory that my mother has cosplayed Barbara Bain's character most of my life because Barbara Bain is a very serious doctor taken very seriously, and uh, she has a particular look for this film, a particular hairstyle, and yeah, for this series, she's uh, you know, the other role I saw her in was of course Cinnamon Carter in uh, Mission Impossible, where she's still a very uh, seriously taken character and very yeah. good at her job. She's very skilled. Nobody ever takes her uh, frivolously in that, in that series either. But in this series, she's a doctor. So there's even more importance. Yeah. And I, I think uh, I'd like to think my mother saw that character and, and found much to admire. And yeah. uh, it's an endearing thought for me that she, uh, she cosplayed this character <laughs> just in daily life. And it was subtle things, but that's, that's my private theory. Anyhow. Yeah. Uh, personal note for uh, the character Cinnamon Carter on Mission Impossible. If you didn't take her seriously, that was usually the character's mistake. Yes, because <laughs> always. That was, <laughs> the downfall. Because she was very much can do and mm -hmm. know how, same as the rest of the people yeah. in Mission Impossible. Good show. And we we very much could talk about that yeah. for a, a while. while. <laughs> but. Back to Space 1999. I didn't mean, I hope no, I didn't no, derail no. your train no, of thought. No, you, you didn't. Not at all. Um, it's a really good, uh, it's a good premise. It's got a dynamic cast. Uh, and they were known with roving, roving uh, swaths of guest stars, including uh, some of our favorite actors, uh, Sir Christopher Lee. And uh, was uh, Peter Cushing also nice? Yes, yes Sir was. Peter Cushing. Yes. If you um, look, Google the stills from this, <laughs> it's amazing. Peter Cushing looks like an intergalactic muffin man. Yes. He's got a very does. interesting hat. Yes. That is twice as tall, I think, as his actual head. Yeah. But, uh, you know, both of them. And there's there's a lot of other actors that find their way in as mm -hmm. guest stars. Well, and Cushing, Cushing always looks good in period clothing. And now here's evidence that even though the design did him a disservice, he actually carries it well. He uh, carries it well, and it shows in his performance that he mm -hmm. is able to carry this regardless of yeah. the outfit. And the same holds true for Christopher Lee. Yeah. And, you know, Christopher Lee, there he's 
he's pretty uh he's pretty re- well christopher lee is regal no matter what you do with him but um yeah the the makeup look is striking they, they didn't yeah. often man him but he's he looks like tall space wizard um with some interesting interesting face paint almost an indian shaman for christopher yeah. lee it's it's quite it is quite interesting. It's quite striking. I don't know how they made him taller, but I think they did. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wouldn't have put him in heels simply, because, but that yeah. may be what they did. Yeah. It, well, he sort of floats through and is, is regal. Yeah. It's a, it, that's a good episode. That's a fun episode. I like, I like some of the things that happen there. They are uh, <laughs> appropriate in a karmic sense. Yeah. Um, but hello, Kitty. Yeah. The, uh, it's, it's, a really, it's a really good show. Uh, for second season, they mm-hmm. added a shapeshifter, and they also changed how the main uh, command center looked. Oh yeah, to where it it had the first season felt more open. It mm-hmm. felt like a much bigger, yeah, bigger command station. But the second one, it felt like they had they had scaled back, yeah. and they again they tried to give it a Star mm-hmm. Trek look. Uh, well, the first the first film it was pretty it was pretty obvious this was an administrative building first. Yeah, uh, it wasn't meant to be a command center, but there was a character, and I didn't think about this until you said there was a character who would interact with computer. Yes. Uh, so it was a it was a black gentleman, and his job was to interact with computer, and it wasn't the computer or a computer. It was capital C computer, and. Uh, so I always thought that was really interesting because it was it was a very um, new concept to have something like that. It wasn't whatever technology at this point for the writers, but it was a computer that they they almost made another character, and it didn't have a voice like Major Barrett in uh, Star yeah. Trek. It wasn't it wasn't a you know computer to punch me up the schematic of uh, I don't know very very similar to what the, happened in Next Gen. Yeah, Playtex Five or whatever, yeah. but. <laughs> um yeah there, there was a, a <laughs> element of that because yeah. the difference <clears throat> is is that he'd have to be standing in front of it and call out to it mm-hmm. and say this versus uh by the time we get to star trek next gen mm-hmm. they're calling out to the computer and it's responding like a clapper yeah. or something like this yeah, well, let's it's hit the com badge and yeah didn't, didn't we all want one of those because we did <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and with the shapeshifter in the second season, uh, what I, I she was spiffy. This, yeah, she was very spiffy. She was very capable, but it was it was a, a woman version of Manimal ten years before Manimal showed in up in space. I in space, did they do the bubble skin effect with her transformations, or did they like I I seem to remember the camera did a close up on her eye. And then in her yeah. pupil was the the animal she was going into, and then yeah. you know the, there's the studio rented tiger or whatever. She was yeah. she was a tiger a lot. Her name was Maya, that was her character name, and and infant Heather was quite taken, yeah, um, with this whole idea. And so I think they they could rent a hawk. So sometimes she was a hawk, but yeah, it's it's usually like raptor, bird, or big cat for the studio yeah. rentals. I think maybe she was a horse at one point, but um, yeah. Uh, she, uh, I don't like in the episode she was in. They would they would feature that maybe once or twice. She'd have to turn into uh, yeah her things, but yeah. it, it wasn't. Uh, 
she wasn't, I don't think she was one of the main, main cast because I think there were stories without her. Uh, I was always disappointed when they didn't have a Maya storyline. Yeah. There. So, <clears throat> excuse me. It was a, it was a good show. There's, there's still some good plots, but only two seasons. And, um, it's not a, a sharp, as sharp a change second season as some of the other shows we've been talking about. Um, I don't actually know why it was canceled. Let me see if I can find that. While we... I think <clears throat> it was expensive. I think it was expensive. And I think also it was one of those shows that by the time you're coming to the end of second season, you really, mm -hmm. for the premise and everything, for the moon to have moved out of mm -hmm. the orbit of Earth, and yeah. it's wandering and they're exploring all kinds of other planets that way. By the okay. time you get to a third season, you really need yeah. to pay off. Yeah. The, the cliff notes on this on, on the line is that most of the cast members had been unhappy with the later season scripts and it was expensive. And a lot of people left the second season. And then there was a, a decline in syndication sales. So they had planned a third season, but they didn't film it. They didn't produce it. So, uh, the series doesn't really have an ending. It just it just kind of stops. Yeah. Um, the uh, mm -hmm. science officer in it mm -hmm. for the first season, he ended up just flat out leaving after the first season. That's that's not the fellow with the mustache. No, it's not. Oh, it's Barry Mose. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Barry Mose. Is, Very good actor, but yeah. he, I think he he got his he got his fill. Yeah first season and yeah. was done he was he's uh, he's not quite the mccoy uh chuckley country doctor archetype but he nearly is yeah uh, he, but, he does bring some really good elements to it and I, I think it's a shame that he didn't get enough out of it to want to stay yeah yeah that is unfortunate but it's it's worth a good look it's it's yeah. a, it's a little dated but it still does uh i think a good job some storylines are really interesting um I dig the groovy theme song. <laughs> I like the design of it. I like the look of it. It's uh, it's pretty chic for uh, for seventy three, and uh, it's yeah. got that mid seventies. It's clean look of you know molded plastic and um, a uniform design. So like the the moon base alpha uniforms are pretty pretty. They look practical. There's a zipper down the sleeve, which I always like, um, but it's it's a good show. And it's, it's, sometimes it goes into goofball territory, but, uh, you know, like Peter Cushing's Muffin Man makeup. Yeah. But that's uh, expected with sci-fi. Yeah. I mean, you kind of have to do it. <laughs> you know, you, you <clears throat> will go off into goofball premises. Mm -hmm. And I, I think historically it's interesting to note this one simply because it is right in the middle. It's right in between mm -hmm. the original Star Trek series, which ended in 1969, and right before uh, Star Wars comes out. And it it has a little bit of both, I feel like. Yeah. It has a little bit of both in both good ways and in negative mm. ways. But the good, I think, outweighs the negative. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it was it was interesting in that respect. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is so but, in the break, Michael and I were talking because um, the ship design for this particular like the, there was a specific transport ship uh, and they called them the Eagles. 
uh, for Space 1999, because of course you had uh, the original design of people ferrying up nuclear waste to the moon. Um, very distinctive look that was kind of based on some of the NASA concepts. And I know for a fact I have seen the Eagle ship design in other series, but I can't place where else I've seen an Eagle. Um, I believe you. I mean, but no, you you and yeah. me, you were right there with me. Yeah, <laughs> it's just I, neither I, one of us can remember. You. So it's nice yeah, sometimes it, it, to see elements of shows that were popular in the '70s, elements recycled into other other shows. Because uh, uh, then you, then you feel like you have an Easter egg. You're like, ah, it's an eagle. Look, yeah, they're doing a thing. They're calling it something else, but it's an eagle. We all know. Phantom um, Menace. You have the ETs as senators. Oh right, yes. Uh huh. You know, yeah. There's an Easter yeah. egg for you to find. Ta da. Yeah. Oh, goodness. The gimme, gimme. Yeah, so that's like three space operas so far. What else, yeah. what else is there? That, that's just in the 70s. Yeah. We're, we're kind of trekking around in the mm-hmm. 70s. And <laughs> no just pun kinda, intended. Yeah, no pun intended. We're <laughs> just kind of moving in and around. I think that's the bolt. That, that's, for me, mm-hmm. that's three of the biggies. Yes. From the 70s. Yeah. There's tons of others, I'm sure. Yes. I'm sure oh, there's, yeah. there's a lot of them that didn't even fly. Uh-huh in that respect yeah. from the from the 70s and now we we were noting uh in the break also some tv shows that that are, came out of films at the time yeah and i'm a little more familiar with one than the other so yeah. i think i could take the one i i think yeah of. so there I was mean, before that i was yeah. just going to note that with both buck rogers and Battlestar galactica both of them were films and then they got spun off Oh. into uh tv shows you're right i forgot about the buck rogers just a footnote on that yeah. uh what was the one you were going to discuss logan's run the logan's run tv yeah. series yeah believe it or not folks um so yep. logan's run i think we did a thumbnail sketch of, of this before um basically it's the future uh blah 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 pollution blah uh we've got a city uh that's sealed off from the environment and it's a society where no one is allowed to age past 30. And at your 30th birthday, you undergo the carousel ceremony where basically it's uh, you get dressed up in a really fancy outfit with a hockey mask and you are catapulted into an arena and you explode. It's a great celebration. Everyone attends. It's uh, because the, the society is taught that after after the carousel ceremony, you renew, you come back to life as as an infant and the ages of people are delineated by a crystal in their palm that turns a certain color and uh so you know everyone is is running around in diaphanous chiffon because it's the 1970s and uh they're wearing greens or reds or oranges or yellows and uh the older you get the closer you are to the reds um the sort of police force in this society are the sandmen because they put people to sleep and the sandmen wear black with a gray stripe on their chest. So you always see them. And in the film, Michael York is a sandman. He's Logan five. Um, the society is kind of geared toward have as much sex and babies as you can, but everyone gets killed when they're 30 and there are many adventures and it's a good film and I highly recommend it. Um, but out of this film came the series where we continue the adventures of Logan five character and his companion, Jessica. They are joined by an Android called Rem, who's uh, an actor I recognize, but I can't bring his name to mind. 
and they're pursued by Francis Seven, who's an ex-Sandman chum of Logan's. Uh, so basically, after they, they get out of the city, spoiler, um, they are running around the California wilderness and uh, pursued by Francis. And they meet different societies. And uh, I, was, I was disappointed because, of course, the series doesn't have Michael York in it. Um, because, of course not. <laughs> but um, this only has lasted for 14 episodes. Uh, here's, the, here's the brief synopsis. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Logan, a 26-year-old police assassin known as a Sandman, begins to question the lethal bureaucracy. Eventually, blah, uh, going in search of sanctuary. Um, blah, blah, blah. Oh, this is not giving me the TV series. Anyhow, they're running around the California wilderness. Uh, Donald Moffat is Ren. That's who that is. Uh, so it's it's episodic. Um, they meet different characters. They're always on the run. It's not quite the fugitive, but almost. Uh, we've got uh, Francis Seven coming up on the, you know, he usually arrives and then they have to move on so they can't find or stay anywhere. Um, Rem is kind of a bumbling sort of butler uh, character who tags along. Um, I, I caught it in syndication as a kid and, uh, was very excited because I loved the film. And then I was a little disappointed by the series. So probably, you know, give it a once over, but don't, don't expect, this is terrible. Don't expect anything earth shaking. Um, how about you, your series? Um, one of the things I was just going to note was that sometimes you have a sci-fi franchise that starts out as a movie and then moves to TV series. And when they do that, sometimes things are lost in translation Yes, or mm -hmm. they do it the other way mm -hmm. and it's a TV show. And then later on it becomes a movie. Uh, yes. I stuff like Firefly. Firefly. <laughs> yeah. Actually the series you're about to talk to has the same number of episodes and was done in 74. Ah, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, interesting. Uh, one like uh, Heather mentioned with Logan's Run, uh, one of my favorite franchises, Planet of the Apes, had a very short-lived TV series. Mm -hmm. It uh, it very much was like The Fugitive, and it had thirteen to fourteen episodes. It didn't last a season, but it was mm -hmm. very much two humans land on the Planet of the Apes. Uh, they befriend an ape by the name of Galen, who is played by Roddy McDowell, who very much was the Planet of the Apes franchise. Pretty I mean, much, yeah. He he did everything. With the exception of doing the Beneath the Planet of the Apes movies. Oh. or He didn't do Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Oh. He didn't do that movie. That's right. The second one. Well, that's like uh, I Reveal my, my Inmost Self, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. With the nuclear bomb and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he actually was directing a film in England and couldn't ah, take the okay. role. Yeah, he's, he does such a good job. Yeah. and any, any of his roles in the Planet of the Apes franchise. Yeah, and mm -hmm. he, for whatever reason, and I'm sure that if he had still been around, Tim Burton and oh, yeah. anybody, and even with the trilogy that Andy Serkis was in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, mm -hmm. I'm sure if he would have still been alive, 
they would have extended to him and said, yeah. we, we'd like, we'd love it if you do a cameo. Yeah. You can't, which you I was not have Roddy McDowell. Yeah. It, well, you know. Roddy McDowell giving his blessing over in the movie would have just helped. Yeah. Put it over as mm -hmm. to, yeah, this is, this is Planet of the Apes. Tim Burton's ending, going back to that just yeah. for a second, I wasn't too keen on it. Uh, the trilogy that you have with Andy Serkis, that was that was done well. Yes. That yes. was done really well. Yeah. And I applaud them for that because it was just kind of like, okay, it's not exactly yes. the original, but it doesn't have to be. It's yeah. it's an interesting yeah. it's an interesting telling mm -hmm. of Caesar. It's and a it's I a like good that. it's a good it stands in its own right. It's a good yeah. there there are callbacks to the original series original yes. films. Absolutely. But uh, it is a good it is a good thing in its own right. Yeah. So um, But it was very much set up like the fugitive in mm -hmm. Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Planet of the, the series Planet of the Apes was very much the fugitive and Mark Leonard was uh yeah, One of the heavies. Uh, he did a great job. So yeah. he's he's in full ape makeup, by the way. So it's, yeah, it's nice when you can get uh, very well known actors of the day to take on such a such a role and also just do a, a bang up job acting through the the heavy prosthetics. Yeah, um, because Ron the Elman act manages it all the time, but it's it's yeah. it's still a heavy challenge. There were pl plenty of stories where they hired an actor for a heavy makeup role and that actor could not deal with the rigors or suffered horribly because of it. Like John Rice yeah. Davies in, in the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, I was, I was thinking of, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Hmm. The man who played the original Herman Munster. Oh, oh, oh. Um, uh, tip of my tongue. Tip of my tongue. Uh, yes. Uh, but he had Gwen something Gwen. He's Welsh. Yeah. Um, he, Fred Gwynn. There we go. Fred Gwynn is his yeah. name. I got to it before you did. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but Fred Gwynn, Herman, and that was Fred Gwynn, uh, he lost so much weight while for the two seasons he did the Munsters and being in the Herman makeup and mm -hmm. the boots and it just, he was a tall lanky man anyway, mm -hmm. but then you put the padding you put the makeup, the prosthetics yeah. on him and everything. And it just, it really seriously, yeah. he, he lost a lot of weight in that two years mm -hmm. just because of the rigors of the makeup. Just a side note there. Another yeah. one of those that not particularly sci-fi, but still an interesting show. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, the fact that we had two monster themed sitcoms at the same time, at the same time, on, Adam's family on and the monsters, yeah. main network TV. And yeah. Like, the monsters are uh, the the shtick is basically uh, everyone's terrified of them, but they're like the most wholesome family on the block. And there's there's a lot of the situational comedy is sometimes they don't talk to each other or listen very well. Um, but they're, yeah, they're basically good-hearted people, and they've got a niece who's like she's a bombshell, and they're always they're always feel very sorry for her because she's not very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> She's not a yeah. vampire or a werewolf or a mummy. So they're like, it's so sad. <laughs> yeah. And mm. some of the uh, stories feel like they could have been used for the Flintstones. Absolutely. Absolutely. So and there's... That's, that's not to be mm -hmm. sparring. It's just, again, 
we're talking about the late yeah. 60s or mid to late 60s excuse yeah. me because it was like yeah. 64 to 66 for both mm -hmm. the adams family and the monsters yeah and very episodic yeah. as far as the monsters are concerned mm -hmm. but you know adam's family similar similar scenario uh so ever just there's not really an outright monster necessarily except for thing lurch yeah. and cousin it but they're just sort of ghoulish and weird and uh john astin absolutely rocks it and yeah uh, what, who's the actress who's morticia she's carolyn jones carolyn jones is her name. luminous luminous actually both the both the leading ladies for these series were absolutely gorgeous actresses. yvonne de carlo mm -hmm. was lily munster yeah and phenomenal had had a lot of experience and a lot of background mm -hmm. in film and before coming to this role but uh with the adams family it always felt like that they were the first goth family <laughs> yes <laughs> okay if you want to talk where yeah. goth came from That's look to the adamses and there's been you know several reboots through the years which i'm sure our listeners are familiar with or can look up yeah so yeah. we're, we're kind of sticking with our short run uh sci-fi so i apologize yeah. for the off track we just but yeah we just kind of had a <clears throat> off the ramp there interesting little little lens into america at the time we had these you know wholesome <clears throat> family sitcom shows about monsters yeah um, and i think a lot of that had to do with just the monsters the monster movies at the yeah, time yeah and this surge of horror hosts and mm -hmm. things yeah and that's why that but we also in the 60s were doing a lot of sci-fi at the same time yes. with yeah. some of the things that we mentioned in our last podcast and yeah well that was that was also i think a reaction to some of the science of the day uh some uh, godzilla came out of the nuclear war fears yeah and uh has often been described like the original godzilla is like nature's nature's screaming response to the insult of nuclear radiation in a in a bomb form um i have so much good to say about the original godzilla like the not raymond burr version get the original japanese film because it's so well done so well done and um you know all the all the schlock 1950s uh giant radioactive animal it's an ant <laughs> it's a horse perspective lizard it's uh you know all of those films came out of those fears yeah um and there's some really good films at the time but there's also a lot of crap and it's uh it's a lot of fun to wade through both like uh, sometimes you find an absolute gem of a film and occasionally you're just like i can see all of the cardboard and strings and zippers this is fabulous past the popcorn yeah, yeah. <laughs> You see all of it and you sit there and go, but I don't care. I don't care. I love this. <laughs> it's, it's its own, it's its own charm. Doctor Who. Yes, absolutely. 60s, 70s Doctor Who. A lot of what carried that is the performances of a lot of the actors who basically are putting on a sci-fi puppet show almost. Yeah. And, I mean, they're, you know, they're handed a pile of crap and they, i wouldn't say a pile of crap well, it's just the, the the effects might have yeah. not have been up to snuff yeah by today's standards certainly but, but they still still really good shows take it and run the absolute yeah. conviction of the actors and uh this is something many many of our favorite actors have talked about i think we mentioned last time sir christopher lee you know sometimes you're in a film that is less than great but you don't ever deliver a subpar performance yeah 
and uh, we're going to have to take another break. Yep. I'm talking a lot. Uh, it's okay. It's all right. You're listening to <laughs> Couch and Coffee Table. We'll be back in just a mo. This is Couch and Coffee Table. This is our third segment for this particular podcast. Welcome back, Couch Surfers. Thanks, for, Thank you for sticking with us here. Uh, I just wanted to mention a little bit about Planet of the Apes a little further. The series itself was very fugitive-esque. And it's also interesting to note that less than a year, uh, well, maybe about a year, because the uh, series, the TV series, ran in 74. In 1975, there was a Saturday morning cartoon called Return to the Planet of the Apes. And I believe Chuck Jones animated that. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Good theme song on that one, too. By the way. In- interesting theme song. Uh, I did not know about it until years later, whenever mm-hmm. I uh, saw a documentary on the Planet of the Apes franchise, that I realized that it was out there. Return to the Planet of the Apes is also on home video for those interested. I mm-hmm. don't know the availability of it because the Planet of the Apes franchise was owned by Fox. So I don't know about the availability of it on home video. You might be able to find it at your local library or YouTube. Yeah, you might be able to find a good clip of part of an episode on YouTube just to see the animation. Yeah. Um, We've mentioned this series a couple of times, and I just want to backtrack really fast. Uh, We've been talking about the Fugitive TV series. And this was done in 67 and also had Barry Mose in it, which I'd forgotten. Yeah. Uh, and David Jens- Janison. Janison. Uh, David Janison, yeah. Yeah, it, four I think seasons. That's how you, I think um, that's how you say that. This was also uh, a couple films. The The basic premise of The Fugitive is this. Uh, a man's wife is murdered, and he is blamed for the murder and uh, incarcerated. But he's innocent because a one-armed man killed his wife. So he escapes from uh, like his being transferred to one prison to another after the trial or what have you. And he escapes. And then the entire series is this man on the run trying to find the one armed man who murdered his wife. Um, One of the films had Harrison Ford in it, I think. Yeah. Harrison Ford was in the uh, film adaptation because they did that. I believe, I want to say that that was done late eighties, early nineties, the film with Harrison Ford. Okay, train crash. That's how he escapes while being transported to death row. Um, One man versus six figured or six fingered man, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) Doctor Richard Kimball is the doctor. Is the 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 titular fugitive. Um, So it's uh, basically the police are and the the FBI are on the hunt for him. Uh, I don't know why this went. Four seasons. That's the premise. <laughs> so it's I, very episodic. And yeah, like he, yeah. he comes to a new town. Here, it's the mysterious drifter who won't get every, his name. Every week, he's whacking some guy in the back of the head and running <laughs> for his life. I mean, <laughs> right. it's the same premise as the Planet of the Apes. Even one yes. of the actors in a documentary mentioned that yeah. he was always whacking some guy in the back of the head in a monkey suit. More you know. concussions than a Tarzan novel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much, but it it worked because 
it worked for me as a kid yeah. because oh, yeah. I really loved Planet of the yeah. Apes. I loved watching the movies whenever they come on. When anytime they were a Sunday afternoon movie, yeah. I tuned yes. in. Yeah, well, with the episodic nature, I mean, that frees up your writing staff because Newtown knew you. Um, here's here's our here's our cipher character. We know we know what the character is. He's Doctor Richard Kimball. He's on the run. Yep. He's Doctor mm-hmm. Bruce Banner. He's on the run. Yeah. He's um, and that we should probably talk about. Um, yeah. He's uh, you know whoever he is, he arrives in town. Um, if we've got a cowboy format, he helps the needy and he defeats the villain, but then he has to move on because there's the federales right on his butt. <laughs> Shane, um, come back, Shane. <laughs> I still have not seen that. I haven't either. I'm uh, sorry. For those okay. of you that have, I'm not poking fun at it. it. It's I a just... film called Shane and there's a child that it's is... based on a book. It's yeah. Yeah. Oh, so we, we mentioned Dr. Bruce Banner, uh, or David Banner. He is Bruce Banner in the comics. In the TV show, he is David Bruce Banner. (laughs) All names. Excuse me. All names are his. Um, Played by Bill Bixby. And of course, the Incredible Hulk is is played with by an incredible person himself, Lou Ferrigno. Hello, Lou. (laughs) I, I haven't had the chance to meet Lou Ferrigno. I never got a chance to meet Bill Bixby. I wished I could have. Yeah. I hope I get a chance to interact with Lou at some point yeah. to be able he's to online. meet him. Yeah. Like he's on Facebook. You can, yeah. I think I have him friended. Uh, he, he does cool. post motivational things a lot. Um, he himself is an incredible person. So yeah, go, yeah. go look up Lou Ferrigno. He's cool. I think my brother um, Josh has interacted yes. with him online and yeah. he's, he's come away with mm-hmm. really positive things as well yeah. to say. And that's, uh, that being the case, Genuine thank fellow. you Lou for talking to my little brother and <laughs> giving him such positive feedback. Yeah. Uh, all it's the love just... there. I appreciate it. I really I do. Um, so five seasons for the incredible Hulk, not a failed series at all. Uh, but similar format. Uh, you've got uh, Dr. Banner, who's irradiated with gamma radiation, and uh, the famous line, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry, don't make me angry, but he's always on the move. He Very good line, but anywhere. overused now. They've, oh, yeah. They've tried to stick it in, I don't know how many Incredible yeah. Hulk movies. It's, it's a tagline. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't that's mean to okay. interrupt. No, that's Go okay. Go ahead. That's okay. Um, but you know, he hulks out at least once an episode and, uh, then we have the lonely man theme and he, I always like that theme. I did too. It's a good, again, look it up. Google the lonely man theme, incredible Hulk. Just a piano piece. Very Mm -hmm. lovely. Mm -hmm. Very sad. Very tragic. It very, it, it very much, the title says it all for that theme. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Banner always has to be on the move. I, you could probably, and this would be an interesting thing to look at a little more closely and in a, with more structure, but the parallels between the Hulk and a werewolf film, I think would be interesting because yeah. you've got the uncontrollable rage and then you've got, you know, the, 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 there's a, there's a saying that with werewolf films, it's always a tragedy and there have been only a, a handful where it isn't. And uh, I could we could talk about that seven days running, yeah. but I digress. I uh, found it interesting <laughs> that Stan Lee's inspiration for the Hulk came from two uh, classic literature sources, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and mm-hmm. Frankenstein. Nice. I did not know that. 
Yeah. Nice. <clears throat> he that he does actually the green, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, green was just one. Yeah. He he always talked about that too. That green was one of the colors that they had a lot of, <laughs> and marvelous. so oh. that's a lot of the reasons why yeah. these characters were drawn a certain way was just the availability of the colors that they had to work with at the time. That's phenomenal. And so that's that's also something I had read in a Stanley interview. Here's this is a little related, but uh, I. At work today, one of my friends was talking about how um, we we were. I work in a water treatment facility, so uh, this particular gentleman is new new to the job. So I was showing some of the equipment to him, and uh, he said it reminded him of a Batman set. And I said, you know, absolutely, because we've got these giant vats of chemicals, and we've got these huge basins of water. And he mentioned that for a while there was a chemical dye for playing cards that was actually flammable. And it was like some sort of red dye for playing cards used mm -hmm. at a particular time. I have not looked up what this was or when. And so I immediately thought of Gambit from the X-Men because he, he has the kinetic thing with the yeah, cards. Yeah, he charges the card and then he and throws it and he explodes. Whap. Yeah, and I, I wondered if somebody somewhere had known about the ink that was a volatile. Yeah. And uh, just, just speaking of like it. a bunch of ink around, because of course, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, there's a whole chemical journey you go on when you talk about um, that wonderful acid green color from the Victorian era. And I forget what it was called, um, but it was just, I'm looking it up. It was absolutely poisonous and they didn't know, but it was so fashionable because it was such a, a beautiful green. Um, and it killed so many different people because they'd make wallpaper out of it and dresses and yeah. um, it would outgas and <clears throat> people would die because their homes were poisonous. Uh, I digress. Uh, but I just, I love, I love that kind of um, connection. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. The shade of green is actually named for a deadly poison, and they're not giving me the name. Do, do, do. Uh, arsenic. It was an arsenic-derived wallpaper. Wow. I wonder. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the trope in Victorian literature of, uh, you know, in the fashionable London home, uh, the lady of the house is languishing, and then they take her to the seaside. She gets better. It's because she gets out of her poison house. And she's not that wearing explains her a lot. arsenic painted gown. Yeah, that explains a lot. And then they go home and she goes in decline and uh, expires of... Uh, no one knows why. <laughs> ennui or something. She yeah. was sad. That's why she died. I'm looking at you, uh, uh, Princess Amidala dying in childbirth because of a plot hole. Girl. <laughs> Who? Amidala. In the prequel. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'll be yeah. mad about that forever. <laughs> it's just bad, yeah, bad writing. I'm... Bad writing. The death of death of Amidala. Okay. Dang it! I digress, but yeah. Sorry, I couldn't make out what you were saying there. That's for a okay. Second. Was... You were saying it fast. <laughs> I was yelling. It was. I'm sorry. You were saying it fast, and it's, so I couldn't make it out. It's good that you made me slow down because probably no one else could understand me either. <laughs> oh, there, yeah, science. <laughs> there are a lot of there are a lot of different things in terms of science fiction and science mm -hmm. and there's only a handful mm -hmm. that we, we we only touched on maybe four or yeah. five if that mm -hmm. 
not that many for this particular episode. But we did spend our spend our currency pretty freely on uh, on Monday, though. Yeah, so, and we'll we we'll come back uh-huh. with something else come Monday. We'll this will be a, a discussion that will mm-hmm. pop up again and again, especially with yes, sci-fi uh, as as we as we rem- reminisce and remember. Yeah, to to briefly uh, revitalize one of the points you had made. Um, Saturday morning cartoons were, I wish we had had a more of an opportunity in our childhood. I wish people had taken more risks with that because it's such a good format for storytelling, uh, especially science fiction. When, when we did, uh, the original series, Star Trek went off the air. They got the entire cast back to do Star Trek, the cartoon. Yeah. And because it was animated, you can have some really unusual aliens. I mean, it was the same thing with the Star Wars prequels. You had a lot more CGI availability. So you had yeah. some really weird aliens that absolutely were not a guy in a suit with something on his face. Yeah. Um, there's a lot so. to be said for the guy in the suit. Absolutely. Yeah, there's and a lot how of much creativity. Is brought, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of creativity. But it is nice. Uh, there's a it's a really awkward character design. One of our cats is uh, doing something naughty here. Um, there's a very awkward character design. Uh, it's it's Lieutenant Ox or Lieutenant mm-hmm. Aix. But he's got three arms and one of his arms is in the middle of his chest. So evolutionarily, this is not a good character design, but it's an interesting one. Yeah. And it's nice to have that, that flexibility. Um, animation costs being what they were, they were still cheaper than some of this to make live action. So um, with the Planet of the Apes cartoon, which is actually very well done from what I can recall, uh, you have a lot of good opportunities to tell some really expensive and interesting stories in a new format. And I wish that had been explored more. I think um, now we've got so many different animated series for adults. Um, that we've we've seen bits and pieces of like simpsons has been on forever in a day but yeah um there's a there's a enterprise or i forget what it's called it's a it's a star wars a star trek cartoon basically lower decks lower decks yes very well done very funny uh from the the episodes i've seen and there haven't been many but um it's almost got a family guy feel to it yes animation and style and jokes. that's really part of its charm because <clears throat> i almost feel like that they're taking a a well seth mcfarland is has done a series called the orville mm-hmm. and it's very much the the better term to say is that it's an homage yeah to star trek yeah but you know, if if you're a purist and someone who's mm-hmm. always loved Star Trek, you might look at it as a pot shot. Yeah, there are um, there are more fart jokes. <laughs> yeah, but it's <clears throat> it's also done very well. Mm-hmm. I I like what Seth MacFarlane did. Yeah, because I feel like the main point is Star Trek, but he tackles a lot of different science fiction tropes. Mm-hmm. And some good social social commentary issues. Yes, there's a, yes, there's there's, there's a, a particular uh, storyline that does incorporate a lot of transgender topics, which yeah. is very important, and it's done very very well. Yeah, uh, so he's and, able to make you laugh and think. Uh huh. It does at the same uh, time with the series. It doesn't pull any punches. It's not overly yeah. moralistic. It it presents a very even 
left-handed view of it. And, and, I, and I say that as somebody who is very much trans rights or human rights, I like how they explore this question. And of course, not to say that being transgender is a question, it's how society is responding to the fact that people are transgender. So that's, that's an interesting uh, footnote on that particular show. It's yeah. still science fiction. It's still pushing the bounds and exploring what society does. It's still uh, asking what if. Yeah. And uh, where Star Trek is very clean cut, pristine, plastic, no dirt in the corners, uh, the Orville does that, but also tells a lot of fart jokes. Yeah. So it doesn't take itself too seriously. And that's that's refreshing yeah. as well. Because you, you, there was room for that. I saw yeah. him on a tear. But there's mm. also, in this particular episode, there is some social commentary, mm -hmm. which gives it a classic science fiction show feel because mm -hmm. you would have that on occasion and they're not they're not on a soapbox they're not on a tear yeah it's not it a very special in. episode of the orville it's not you know yeah it's it's not really something that they 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 go out of their way to do mm -hmm. it's just something that really fit in with this premise and it's and, done and well these characters yeah yeah it's, it's done it's very just, well it's just done well. Yeah. Recommended. I think they've been renewed for a third season. Uh, I think they have. Yeah. I don't, I, I think because of COVID pandemic mm -hmm. and just a lot of uh, start yeah. and stops, they, <clears throat> they've had some trouble. I can't wait to see the third season. I think the third season is their final season because they also wanted to only have as many seasons as the original Star uh, Trek. I see. Yes. So they're, they're trying to, Three seasons. It's listed as a comedy drama. If, if yeah, that, uh, it's really good. I, I, I really yeah. like Seth MacFarlane and mm -hmm. his approach to humor. I mean, I, I got a kick out of his Ted movies. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, but uh, I, I really like Seth MacFarlane. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm familiar with with a lot of his work. I, I don't know that I could cite a favorite film. I would have to, I would have to do some research there. There's still, but, uh, uh, he, he did a Western sometime back. Uh, I think it's called a million ways to die. I'm mm. not sure, but it's one I haven't seen yet. And I need to, because I do like his approach to humor a mm -hmm. lot of times. So he, yeah. And I, I didn't really ever watch family guy. I think I caught a couple episodes with you. So I, I enjoyed uh, family guy. I know. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't that's okay. To... No, it's it's all right. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's not quite my thing, but it's yeah, it has its moments. I'll I'll concede. <laughs> yeah, but Lower Decks does have a Family mm -hmm. Guy kind of yeah uh, way about style, it and everything. Feel, yeah, fart jokes. And for that, it's kind of fun to see Star Trek not take itself all that seriously yes. and be able to sit there and say, "Yeah, we're we're Lower Decks," mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Long time ago, there used to be. Um, so Star Trek has always had fan fiction. That's actually some people will argue certain brands of fan fiction got started because of Star Trek. Um, those of you playing at home slash fiction, which is usually uh, a gentleman and gentleman pairing uh, kind of kicked off because lady fans would write about Kirk and Spock a lot. <laughs> And in the early days of the internet, you would find these stories and um, that became a whole thing, a whole genre, which is really interesting to track down through the history. Um, makes for some pretty good stories, uh, just the actors discovering that this is online and that, that people 
uh, Brent Spiner was pretty funny about uh, fans sending him drawings of himself naked and in various, various compromising situations. Um, that his data had just, I mean, from the second episode, he was kind of doomed in that fashion. So, you yeah. know, couldn't help it. Um, but uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good storytelling around there. And where was I going? I was talking about, I hate it when this happens. <laughs> I go on a tear and then I get on a tangent and then, then suddenly I'm in Timbuktu and I don't know what's happening and somebody stole my wallet. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. I was on the boat, and I was sitting on a huge batch of cocaine, and I was told <laughs> I had to give up the finger of my left hand. <laughs> Michael is quoting an episode of MST3K. Um, that's the... Uh, it's from... Uh, no, it's from... The Short Assignment Venezuela. Oh, I didn't have to do it. It's already done. Highly recommended. If You can probably find it online. It, it's Assignment Venezuela, and it does have a Star Trek reference in it, because the... Joel and the bots are riffing on something. Yep. Um, they, they they riff here and there on Star Trek. Uh, another fun series, not one that was a short-lived. Yeah, no. And so many Mystery lives. Science Theater 3000 has its own life, and I am happier for it because yes. you need something that's just a very simple premise, and there it is. Because yeah, terrible you, schlock films that are wonderful absolutely wonderful when that so that i'm sure everyone listening knows what mst3k is but here's here's the pitch yep um you have terrible films and they're being sent to a captive in a satellite in space that is shaped like a dog biscuit um because there are some evil mad scientists who are running a social experiment and a social experiment is to subject the man trapped in the dog biscuit spaceship uh, to these terrible films to see if they can drive him insane. And uh, every week there's an invention exchange because the captive on the dog biscuit ship is, was a well-known comedian who, who made gadgets. That was part of his thing. And I, I didn't know this, but, but prior mm -hmm. to this show, this is what he was known for. He was on Letterman with some of his weird inventions. Um, and in the first couple uh, seasons of this show, this was the classic format. You had Joel Robinson on the ship he had some robots that he made to keep himself sane. And then you had the mad scientists, Dr. Forrester, uh, in this underground lair. And his um, he had a first assistant. I don't remember his name. But then his second assistant was TV's Frank. Yeah. And that was the character name, TV's Frank. Yeah. And that is the classic cast. You've got Tom Servo, the robot, Crow, um, one of the characters' names has uh, is unfortunately a slur. <laughs> Her name is Gypsy. I apologize, but um, later, Cambot. yeah, Cambot. Later seasons actually change her name to reflect the fact that that is a slur. So that's awesome. Uh, that doesn't happen until the, some of the reboots, though. But anyhow, they're mm -hmm. on the ship and they they screen the films and how they survive the social experiment is they make fun of the films and. Sometimes the writing is on fire and it's so on point. And Michael and I have been reduced to sobbing while laughing. And uh, with Assignment Venezuela, there's a particular scene where I had him, I had him run the film back a couple of times because I couldn't stop laughing. And I mean, we spent a good 20 minutes on that, that like yeah. five second clip I, of film. Yeah, I think I, yeah, I know what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. 
um, I could not stop laughing. So this is a very, very fond. Uh, we're very fond of this series. I haven't seen. We haven't seen any of the new ones, really. There was a. We haven't seen anything of the new. Uh, there was a riff tracks that was. It was online as yeah. a show for a while. Yeah. Then it you was rebooted. Still, uh, yeah, you Felicia can. Day. I'm sorry. I yeah, you can know. still find a lot of the riff tracks here and there mm -hmm. if you go looking. I'm sure it's available. Um, there's. We haven't seen anything with Felicia Day. Sadly, mm -hmm. we haven't seen any of the new stuff. I'm sure it's available and has been available for mm -hmm. a while. We just haven't had the chance yet. I, I hope to mm -hmm. here soon, just because I'm very curious to see Felicia Day as mm -hmm. one of the mad scientists. She is supposed to, I mm -hmm. think she's supposed to be like the granddaughter or mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. like that, or the daughter of Dr. Clayton Forrester. Gotcha. Who, yeah, that's the original. Yeah, because they, they do change up the frame every now and then. Uh, it's it's almost always some guy on the dog biscuit chip robots and then some other group of mad scientist or mad, mad somebody tormenting him and sending him these cheesy movies to see if he'll break. And mm -hmm. the riffing that they do is their way of lashing out and keeping their sanity mm -hmm. while watching this. <laughs> film <laughs> we use the term loosely <laughs> yeah uh, some of the films like there there's some of them are so bad that they are classics in their own right and i i would uh they're just they're just terrible a manos hands of fate is 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 probably the pinnacle of that that example uh it is impossible to watch without it being framed it's <laughs> that 3k i've tried it's awful um yeah there's there's a couple like that uh Santa Claus Conquers the Martians is one that I have tried to watch oh without, and I I did for a few years here and there. But if I, you are in a state that has, I had to drink in order to. Yeah, that's the only way you're getting through it is to get get a snootful or a tank on because, my word, I've seen it I've helps seen it. with the mindset. It, it really does. Yeah, <laughs> if you're not sure what planet you're on, it it does. You can chalk it up to a fever dream for parts of it, or you can just sort of yeah, yeah. phase out and, and go off on your own little world. Yeah. So anymore, <laughs> if I'm going to watch Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, I'm probably going to... We're having some beer. Well, I'm pro if not the alcohol, then the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version. Yes. Because it yes, just... You can't it goes down a little bit easier. <laughs> you know, if yeah. you're going to eat that hearty of a meal... You know, have something to drink with it to wash it down. That's kind of how I see oh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. Yeah, the classics are worth watching. So, um, yeah, that's that's a, not not really fitting the theme of the discussion of last week, but um, absolutely something we'd recommend taking a look into. Yeah. Uh, I think we are winding it up, though, this time. Yeah, we, we, really... we, we have come to the end, and we are going to wind it up for now. Uh, we'll pick another subject, or mm -hmm. we'll, we'll come back to this off and on throughout the month yeah. as, as we think of more mm -hmm. short-lived sci-fi shows. There's a lot out there. There's yes. so many that we didn't touch on that we'll remember later on and go, oh, yeah, we didn't mention this. We'll mention this uh, later on and probably bear off into another the, subject whirlwind adventure yeah yeah i guess uh to summarize i would say a lot of a lot of the problems plaguing most of these series occurred when writers had a really good pitch idea 
but they didn't really find their feet in the first season or they didn't think they found their feet. You know, they had a, they had a fan base and they had a, they had a storyline, but they didn't know it. So they made radical changes in the second season and that killed the series or that happened. And the network uh, kept uh, faffing around with the scheduling so that uh, if you wanted to see the show, you, it moved and you didn't know where it was. Um, I don't think any of these shows that we've mentioned suffered from uh, a lack of good acting, which is, I don't, I don't think it did either. I think un not unusual, but it's, it's something to be said for everyone involved. I mean, these were well acted pieces The the fault lay in just the show, show producers not really being able to find their groove, not being able to find their groove. Some instances, it was a very expensive undertaking yes. and the production costs eventually killed mm -hmm. the show. Yeah. And that's that not just with Star Trek, but uh -huh. that also happened with Mission Impossible, the original yes. series as well. It just was so expensive to make this movie of the week, basically mm -hmm. a one hour episode. And yeah. it just was, but that's, yeah. that's for another time. Killer but song. yeah. <laughs> oh, very memorable. Very memorable. Everybody yeah. knows that theme song. Yeah. But that's what you have with a lot of these shows is that it's either expense or it's just, it doesn't quite find mm -hmm. the footing and things like that. So, you know, then it's it goes to pitfalls. Cult status. Like the fans, the fans find their hook in the series and then the fans expand the universe. Sometimes in fan fiction. Yeah. Sometimes at conventions with cosplay. But there's there's always a what if in the minds of a fan. Yeah, I think, and that's that's an incredibly rich experience, and I, I love seeing it. And that's where these it. shows live. Yeah, in memory and in mind. But we're gonna wrap it up for now. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we upload Mondays and Wednesdays of every week, and uh, we appreciate you <laughs> swinging by and um, hanging with us for a little bit. This has been Couch and Coffee Table. Until next time, take it easy. <laughs>